Like it or not, windmills and solar panels won't be sufficient to power the U.S. economy and way of life. Nuclear power will be part of the mix. The Government Accountability Office has found licensing of advanced reactors of widely varying sizes are stuck at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. For why that's the case, we turn to the GAO's Director of Natural Resources and Environment Issues, Frank Rusco. Frank, good to have you back. Thanks very much. Great to be here. And let's begin with a little bit of a definition here. You were looking at licensing of advanced reactors. I guess there's a new technology generation of reactors that have been developed. And so what kinds of reactors and licensing were you looking at here? Yes, a lot of the new reactor designs, they differ either in size. There are a lot of small reactors. There are a couple other differences. They tend to focus on more passive safety technologies so that they're sort of inherently safer. They won't melt down in no matter what kind of scenarios. And then there are also different fuels that can be used and different cooling systems. So they're just new technologies. But I would say that most of the new designs are going to be smaller than the big, huge reactors we've seen in the past. I mean, that's not the point of our conversation, but that seems to be one of the big untold stories of advances in this area of technology. It's not as if people are looking to license another new fleet of Fukushima's or Three Mile Islands here. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, there's going to be improvements in in sort of their inherent safety. And also, just the different sizes would enable them to be slotted into the existing electric grid in different ways. And in some cases, be more flexible, make the grid more flexible. Right. Some of these can fit in the space allotted by a trailer behind a truck, for example. They're that small that could maybe power a town or a small region or something. Right. Yeah. There are those micro reactors like that. And then there are others that are sort of, you know, more the size of a large house or something like that. And they, of course, can power larger amounts of area. All right. And in looking at the NRC, then what is the backlog or what is the caseload that they're getting now to approve, I guess it's licenses to install and operate these devices? Yeah, well, they already have a handful in process of of licensing and have gotten through a couple, uh, one that was uh, denied a license, but they're expecting a lot more to come. There's been a huge amount of private sector investment and federal money has gone into this. And so they're expecting going forward a larger number of these. And one of the biggest problems that NRC has had is keeping staff that have the right skills to evaluate these things on staff at the right place and at the in the right number. So it's to sort of match the number of applications they have. So that's the biggest sticking point. And just before we get to that particular issue, what types of outfits are seeking approval to operate these? Are they the utilities that are looking to expand their sources or is it completely new entities in the power generation field? It's mostly the latter. So it's companies that have staked their claims on these new technologies, and they are, in some cases, negotiating deals with utilities. If they can build it, they'll buy the power, that sort of thing. But there's a lot of startups in this world. And so the implication for the NRC is that because they, say, use fuels that are not traditional or cooling and safety mechanisms and form factors that just haven't been seen until this era relative to old nuclear-style reactors, that takes a different skill set or different knowledge set to be able to evaluate? Yes. So if you have somebody with the background and can understand the science behind these, the biggest problem, I think, is keeping those people 
you know, in federal employment at a time when the industry is booming and trying to hire folks with those kinds of skills. We're speaking with Frank Rusco, Director of Natural Resources and Environment Issues at the Government Accountability Office. In other words, the NRC is competing on the regulatory and licensing side with the industry that's developing and deploying. Absolutely. And that's not an uncommon thing in government, but there are steps that NRC should be taking to make sure that they can keep the right number of people in the right places. Yes. Yeah, so is the sense of this particular report, which was you know, specifically requested by Congress, as most of them are, that this is a potential holdup for the industry and for the deployment of these devices, or is there a logjam right now? I think that it's more that there's a coming logjam, and NRC has embarked on issuing new rules and guidelines for licensing these advanced reactors but that's not going to be done anytime soon. And so currently they're using the old review process. And so now they have to kind of fit the new technologies into that old process. And, you know, NRC has not done the best job in communicating exactly how they want the companies to do that. And that's another part of the problem. And does the NRC acknowledge this shortcoming or these the set of shortcomings? They understand that they have human capital challenges for sure, and they essentially agreed with our recommendations that they take some further steps to work on that and also just communicate a little bit better. So I think they understand it, but they're trying to adapt in real time as these things come in, and you know that's inherently a thorny problem for an agency. And as one of the potential pitfalls for their approval process is the inevitable lawsuits. I mean, imagine telling someone, see that small building over there that's built at the edge of the farm next to your neighborhood? That's going to be a nuclear reactor. One can only imagine the array of lawsuits that would line up for a thing like this. So in some ways, their approvals have to be pretty bulletproof. Yeah, absolutely. NRC's approvals tend to be very, very bulletproof. You know, they kind of require a lot of what you might call over-engineering to make sure that, you know, the safety measures that are in place are actually going to work even in very different circumstances than you might anticipate. So I would say that their review process is very rigorous. And the challenge is to make it rigorous so that it can stand up to challenges, but at the same time, not make it so onerous that nobody can get through the process. Right. So again, it's a human capital problem in the sense that everybody understands what the technological requirements are here and the knowledge requirements and the regulatory requirements. They just need people to carry it out. Exactly. And, you know, another issue is there's going to be turnover. So whenever something like this happens, you know, in, a, in an industry that's expanding, you'll see experts getting pulled from all over the place to go work in that industry. And then, of course, that will affect the regulators. But it's really important to have a system in place. When you lose somebody, you transfer the knowledge that they had ahead of losing them, that you have a process where you're always training new people in anticipation that you might be losing some of your best talent. So that's another thing they need to work on. Yeah. So let's uh, summarize the recommendations you had to the NRC and did they accept those? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that there, there's four recommendations, but we can put them in two buckets. And the first one is is human capital. You know, NRC knows that they have a human capital problem. They have challenges getting the right people in the right places at the right time. And they have taken some steps to try to pay more for people when they when they need to, things like that. But what they haven't done is try to evaluate the steps they're taking in order to facilitate hiring to know whether they're working. So they need to, to look at baselines and say, okay, 
here's what's happening. We're missing out on these people. You need to talk to them. You need to interview them and say, what would have changed your mind? You need to figure these things out. And so we're recommending that they build in some of these measures of success so that they can change the, uh, the incentives over time and try to be better at hiring. I mean, there's a lot at stake here. If you look at, say, 25 to 50 years ago, the licensing process for nuclear power plants, as we traditionally understood them, basically resulted in the bankruptcy of most of the utilities trying to install them because they never could get it done and they would have billions sunk into them but nothing to show for it. This is a whole new approach to that industry, and it sounds like something the nation needs to nurture. I mean, by policy, they're nurturing it, and they have to fulfill that policy because we need the electricity. Yes, absolutely. You know, that, you know that's, that is the big challenge. You know, they, we want these things to be very safe, but at the same time, if you can't build them, they're, you know, they're, or, or in a timely fashion, you, you're sort of you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Sure, the old-timers remember the Lilco story, and nobody wants to see that come back. Frank Rusco is Director of Natural Resources and Environment Issues at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Plug into the Federal Drive by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, 
you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about 
integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. That's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.